All right. Um, <clears throat> so years ago, I performed an experiment with a few people who I knew. And these people were friends of mine who professed to be Christians. Uh, and for fun, I handed out to each person a piece of paper that I put together. And it was like a test. Um, and instead of questions, I had quotes. And under each quote were a few names. And their jobs were to guess from the list of names who said the quote that I put on the top. Uh, and it was multiple choice. We had a few questions and a few names under each, uh, each quote. And they had to find out who said what. So <laughs> the trick is that I mixed in a few quotes from secular individuals and quotes from the Bible in hopes that they would be able to tell the difference. And I was quite sad when I got the papers back from everyone to see that many quotes that were not from the Bible were thought to be from the Bible. It was interesting to see that all the papers that were returned to me had either Jesus or Moses or someone from the Bible circled as an answer to the question, who said God helps those who help themselves? <laughs> now the answer should have been none of the above because that's not in the Bible. Um, one of the quotes listed was a quote straight from the Bible uh, from Matthew 10, 34 through 35 that reads, do not think I, I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And it was interesting to see what the answers uh, were that they circled. I got everything from Charles Manson to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> but this is, actually a, this is actually a quote from Jesus himself. <laughs> Not speaking about violence, but speaking about the cost of being his disciple, right? And how the gospel causes division within family at times. Now, I wasn't surprised to receive these kind of answers, unfortunately. The reality is that many who profess to be Christians today are not too familiar with God's word. Many get their ideas of Christianity from popular culture and their theology from their own imagination. Uh, now, this, is, this isn't only an issue for new believers or Christians in unhealthy churches where the word of God is not taught. This can also be an issue in healthy churches. Um, many people have been members in a good church for years, for seven years, ten years. People have been members in churches for 15 years or more. And the sad thing is that they are the same person that they were seven years ago, ten years ago, 15 years ago, and so on and so forth. So, in other words, they've sat under faithful teaching and have not matured in the faith one bit. It was J.I. Packer who began his book, Knowing God, with a statement in his preface that said, Ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communing with him, lies at the root of the church's weakness today. And this is true. Too many Christians today have, neglect, have neglected their most foundational calling, which is to know their God. So today's point, you'll see here, um, today's topic is a healthy member is a biblical theologian. So I want to spend our time arguing that a healthy church member is a biblical theologian, and I'm going to explain it in three points. Um, the first point is, what is a biblical theologian? I'm going to explain that. And why must I be one? Okay, this is for the regular attendee, the regular church member. Question number two is, what is biblical theology? And point number three is, how does biblical theology help the church? OK? 
Okay, so let's, let's start with the first question. What is a biblical theologian and why must I be one? So we tend to think of scholars and great minds of the faith when we think of the word theologians, right? People like D.A. Carson, R.C. Sproul, G.K. Beale, Wayne Grudem. And these, of course, these men have invested years of study in our professional theologians. This is what they do for a living. But the word theologian simply means one who engages in the study of the nature of God and religious belief. And this is what each one of us are called to do, to give our lives over to studying God's word for the sake of knowing God and doing his will. Now, a biblical theologian simply means a person studying theology who takes into account the whole Bible, the whole story, the whole picture, and the framework that the Bible has for itself. So in other words, when studying the character of God in Scripture, one must take in consideration all of who God is revealed in all of Scripture. This means when we read a passage of the Bible, we're reading it in its full context. A lot of people read the Old Testament and see God as a, a wrathful, judging God, and then they look in the New Testament and it seems like God is filled with mercy and grace. But when we read the scripture, we have to read it in its full context. God is both just, filled with wrath, but God is also merciful and gracious. This is what it means to read the Bible in its full context. Think of, what it, think, think of what it means to read something in its proper context. Here's an illustration. Imagine one day you're in the Florida mall, trying to purchase some shoes for work, and you happen to be short $10. And as you turn around, to walk away in your disappointment, you find a ripped piece of paper on the floor that read, I got what you need. <laughs> I'm located in Orange Blossom Trail south from Florida Mall. So with excitement, you begin to run towards OBT, looking forward to get what you need, which is the $10 to buy those shoes. And when you get there, all you see is a car dealership with a lot full of cars on sale. So you begin to wait and wait, and wait, and wait, but still you do not see $10 bills flying at you. What went wrong? The paper did say, I got what you need. What kind of questions should you have asked when you pick up that piece of paper on the floor? Maybe you should have asked, what kind of document is this? Who wrote it? Why and when did the person write it? To whom did they write this paper to? What, what are they offering, and is it available for me? Are they even talking to me? <laughs> I would hope that you would have quickly noticed that the paper was merely an advertisement for a car dealership selling cars. Now, this illustration may seem silly, but the truth is that many Christians today approach the Bible in this way. They'll look at a text, they assume it's talking to someone or talking to themselves. Uh, they apply it incorrectly, but this happens all the time. Being a biblical theologian deals with dealing with the context of the scripture. Now, it not only deals with reading passages in the, in the context of the chapter or the book, but reading scripture in the context of the whole narrative of the Bible collectively, and most importantly, in the context of the Bible as God's holy and infallible word. This is what it means, in short, to be a biblical theologian. So, you have your verse that you read in the scripture. But the verse is in the context of the chapter, and the chapter is in the context of all the other chapters, right? And all the other chapters are in the context of the book itself, 
And the book of the Bible is in the context of the whole Bible as well. In other words, when you read uh, scripture as a biblical theologian, you're reading it as one part of the big storyline of scripture. Now, with that said, God calls us to seek deeper into the knowledge of God. So let's look at some verses that show that we're called to do this. Colossians 1, 9 through 10. Can I get a volunteer to read that? And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Amen. So uh, notice in verse 9, and so, from the day, uh, yeah, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with, what? The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. Here's another verse. Hebrews 5, 11, going through chapter 6, verse 1. Who wants to read that? Thanks. So a lot of people look at this verse and they use it as an excuse to remain um, as a baby spiritually. Um, For example, you see in the beginning, uh, actually in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So someone will read that and say, well, you know, I'm okay. I I just need the milk, the simple uh, parts of the scripture. But as you see the scriptures progress here, verse 6, um, the next chapter, I'm sorry, uh, verse 1 on chapter 6 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. The whole point is you need to start with milk, but you can't stay with milk. You have to continue to mature in the word of God, in the doctrine of Christ. Another verse, First Peter 2, 1 through 3. Who wants to read that? So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. So, so look at where I underlined there. It says, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may, what? Grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So maturity is, is commanded to us. Spiritual maturity, maturity in the knowledge of Christ. Another verse here. I don't know if you guys can see it from back there, but 2 Peter 3, 13 through 18. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new 
righteousness dwell. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Uh, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own twist their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen. So again, verse 17, you therefore, beloved knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And then look at the answer to that. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and the day of eternity. Amen. So we see from these verses, and many more, I'm sure, that the word of God commands us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord. Many people refuse to get into theology because they assume that the result of studying theology is becoming puffed up with head knowledge. But a true theologian, a biblical theologian, is one who applies the word of God into his own life, understanding that this is the very purpose of God's word and the reason that God has graciously revealed it to us. Many people may get intimidated with theology or personally feel that studying and using your intellect, your mind, is not Christian-like. They assume that Christianity is essentially based on feelings, experience, and sentiments. And in a lot of cases it is. Our service to God and our service to others should be done with joy and, glad, joy and gladness. Those are feelings, right? We are to love God with all our hearts. So again, sentiments are a big part of the Christian faith. But let us not forget what John 4.24 says. Uh, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And for, and for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So again, it, it's a spiritual, but it's also based on truth. For example, many would say, well, I don't need theology or doctrine. What I need is to love others and to love God. Love is the answer. And as, mu as much as I agree that love is essential, I would have to ask you or whoever would pose such a question, I would have to ask the following question, what do you mean by love? What does it even mean to love God? What does it even mean to love others? If your definition of love is not first informed by the word of God, then your definition of love is pagan. In other words, how do you know whether you how do, we, how do you know whether or not you are loving correctly? That's the question. The scriptures show us what love is and how we ought to love correctly. So many would say, I don't need theology. What I need is faith in God. And of course, as a reformed Christian, I would follow that by saying a partial amen. It is by faith alone that we receive salvation. But the question that should follow is faith in what God? 
Is it the God of popular prosperity gospel that submits to your request to be successful and prosperous while living a life of sin? If you only sow a seed of $100? Is it the God of easy believism that is gracious and has no wrath? Everyone makes it to heaven? Or is it the true God of the Bible? How do you know God if you're not first informed by the scriptures about his character, his will, and what he requires of you? For those of you who struggle with this idea of knowledge and studying, you must always remember that even though Paul is the one who wrote that knowledge puffs up, you see that in 1 Corinthians 8.1, it's the same Paul who wrote, be filled with the knowledge of his will in Colossians 1.9. So in other words, knowledge for the sake of knowledge is what puffs us up into pride, right? It's a purposeless uh, pursuit for self-glorification, knowledge for the sake of knowledge. But knowledge for the sake of knowing and worshiping Christ is an act of love. So theology, the study of God, should always lead to doxology, the worship of God, right? That's why we read the scriptures, not for head knowledge, but to worship God correctly, to worship him with all our hearts. And so this is the command for every believer. You're required to be a theologian, at least a theologian with a little t. Okay, next point. What is biblical theology? Now, you, you might have heard of systematic theology, which is the study of the key doctrines of the Bible. And what you usually find in systematic theology are like the doctrine of God, or soteriology, which is the study of salvation, or es eschatology, which is the study of the last things. So these are categories that are in systematic theology. But biblical theology is its own distinct kind of theology. So what is biblical theology, and why is it important for the regular church member? Let me start by defining it. Biblical theology is the theology of the Bible as understood by the Bible. Biblical theology seeks to identify the Bible's own theology of the Bible itself, utilizing the principles and methods of interpretation found in the Bible. So more specifically, it seeks to ascertain the overarching teaching of the Bible in terms of how the Bible understands itself. So what, is the Bible, what, what does the Bible say about itself? And that's what biblical theology is. Now, there are two important principles when studying and interpreting the Bible. There's general hermeneutics. First of all, the word hermeneutics means the study of interpretation. There's a general aspect to it. And then there's a special hermeneutics, a special divine way of interpreting the scriptures. Both are needed. I'm not going to spend too much on the categories, but I'm going to explain each one. General hermeneutics are the method of interpreting scripture to understand the grammatical side of the passage. Like when you read the Bible, you're looking at the words and you're trying to understand it by seeking and studying the original language, right? And there's a historical side of the passage, which is like looking at the context. What was the culture like when you're reading it in, the, in that time? This is all often called the grammatical <coughs> historical method. This method is vital if we're, we are to be faithful and diligent in seeking to understand God's word. We have to be true to that. But biblical interpretation does not end there. Right? We're Christians. We don't just approach the Bible like a science. 
Any liberal who wants to interpret the Bible can come to many different conclusions using the grammatical historical method if they don't believe the following principles that we would as Christians. Number one, we believe, and this is important when you, when you approach the Bible, we believe that the Bible is God's holy and infallible word. It's his word. That changes the way that you read uh, scriptures, knowing that it's the word of God. Point number two, the Bible is Christocentric. It's all about Christ, Old Testament and New Testament. Point number three, the Bible, though written by men, was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which makes the Bible in its original form infallible, being that the true author is God, the Holy Spirit himself. Okay, now, this is where, this, this is where the term special hermeneutics come in. This is what it means to have special hermeneutics. Special hermeneutics, what it does is it goes into the New Testament and sees the writings of Paul or John, all the writers of the New Testament, and remembering that being that they wrote it under the inspiration of the, script, uh, of the Holy Spirit, when you see them interpreting the Old Testament, this is how we interpret the whole Bible. In other words, uh, special hermeneutics goes into the New Testament, looks at these writers, takes advantage of what, they, what the Holy Spirit has revealed to them regarding the Old Testament, and we allow the scripture to interpret itself. What better way to interpret the Bible than allow other writers of the Bible, being uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to interpret other parts of the Bible? Remember, the Holy Spirit is the best interpreter. Um, he is infallible. He is God. Best interpreter of the Bible is the Holy Spirit himself. Therefore, we must allow the Holy Spirit-inspired text to interpret other Holy, Inspir Holy Spirit-inspired texts. This is, what, this is where we can be assured that we are receiving the point of the passage that was intended by the author. For example, how do we, how do we know that the Old Testament is God's word? It helps to look at the New Testament and see, for example, how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. Let me show you a verse. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and read it. John 10, 33-36. The Jews answered him, is it not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, are being, you being a man make yourself God? Jesus answered them, it is, not is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. So again, look at what I underline. <clears throat> the way that Jesus is speaking here, he's, he's saying the same thing in three different ways. In other words, the first one I underlined is, it is not written in your law. Okay, This is referring to the Old Testament. I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God, you see, so your law and the word of God is, is the same thing. Um, and scripture cannot be broken. So again, he's calling scripture the word of God and the word of God the law, which is the Old Testament. So again, through that, we're able to see, well, yeah, scripture, the word of God, the Old Testament, they're one. That, that, that's what it is. We can look to the Old Testament and say, this is the word of God. This is coming from God. This is Holy Scripture. So we see in these verses that Jesus, regarding the writings of Moses and the prophets, 
he regarded them as authoritative and submitted himself to it, not because they were writings of wise men, but because he considered them the word of God. We've seen how the Old Testament is God's word from the New Testament writers, but how do we know that the New Testament is part of Scripture? Another verse, uh, not that one. First Timothy five eighteen says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborers deserve his wages. So take a look at that verse. Pay attention to what Paul is calling scripture. You see where it says, for the scripture says, and notice how he quotes a verse from the Old Testament. Um, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. But notice where he, in the second part, and the laborers deserve his wages. That's a quote from the New Testament. In other words, he's calling a New Testament passage scripture. That's how we know that Old Testament is scripture, but we also know that New Testament is considered scripture. Paul is calling New Testament writing scripture. This, this means we too should regard both Old and New Testament as God's word. Now, many of you would never question whether the Old or New Testament is God's word, but regardless, it is still important to know how we come to certain conclusions, certain doctrines that we hold to, and we do this with biblical theology. This was just an example how to study the Bible and how to allow the Bible to interpret itself and not letting our own ideas dictate the point of Scripture. And that's the goal of biblical theology. Now, that brings me to my last point, last question. How does biblical theology help the church? How does biblical theology help the church? Number one, biblical theology helps the church because it places us, the church, in the map of the whole story of God and helps us to play our God-appointed role in the narrative. So when we read scripture and we understand the whole narrative of scripture and you see where it talks about the church um, again, it, it places us in that whole storyline of Scripture. When you read the Bible fully, you see a connection from Genesis to Revelation. The church plays a vital role in God's overall plan of redemption. Let me show you in Scripture. Genesis 1, 28. Can I have somebody read that? So we look at a verse like Genesis 128, and we see in, in the creation mandate, you see what was mandated in creation, that God's original intent for us was to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, for his glory to spread to all creation. But ever since sin entered the world, mankind has done the opposite. Sin was an attack on life and creation and mainly an attack on God's lordship and glory. But we see, when we, when we use the method of biblical theology, we can look to the New Testament and see verses like this, Colossians 1, 3 through 6, and see how God is using the church to continue this plan that he originally mandated in the beginning. 
Um, and he's, continu- he's continuing it through the church. Um, so let, let's read that one. Can someone read Colossians 1, 3 to 6? Amen. So you see these key words there that I underline. The gospel. So again, through the gospel, look at verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is what? What is it doing? It's bearing fruit and increasing. In other words, it's being fruitful and multiplying. And so this connection shows that what God ordained in the beginning is coming to pass in his special plan of redemption through Christ. God is having men who have been redeemed and their hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit bear fruit and multiplying. In other words, bearing fruit and increasing. So biblical theology helps us to see our role in the story of God, and this is one of them. Another role is biblical theology helps us to see our role as the temple of God. In Genesis, here's another verse, in Genesis 3.8a, we see how um, God has called us to be the temple of God. Uh, One time in Genesis, we see that God and man once dwelled together, right? This is what it means to be the temple. Uh, A temple was a way where heaven and earth would meet, where God would come and be in the presence of men. And in the beginning, we see in Genesis, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, God and man were in perfect fellowship. But ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, when when man sinned against God, our fellowship was broken. Yet throughout the scriptures, temples were used to bring back this holy union with God and man. But now in Christ, we have been reconciled with God, and his Holy Spirit lives in us. So our union with Christ... Christ being the perfect temple of God, makes us the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in the end, in the new heaven and earth, we will experience this perfect fellowship with God in its fullness. As a church, we spread the kingdom of God and move towards that end. So biblical theology helps us make that connection. We see uh, the example of the temple in the Old Testament, and we see how God is still fulfilling that in the New Testament. And in the future, in the new heaven and earth, that will be made perfect. We will be with God in uh, perfect fellowship. And I'll show you a verse in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you see how the scripture is being fulfilled? You see the connection between old and new? This is biblical theology. Another point about biblical theology, biblical theology helps the church see Christ as the center focus of the Bible and not ourselves as the center focus of the Bible. Have you ever wondered why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like, really? Nothing at all? You don't want to know anything at all but Christ and him crucified? Does that mean that Paul is not interested in Genesis? 
or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy and so on? Not at all. But what does it mean when Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? What it means is that in Paul's theology of all scripture, all scripture is pointing to Jesus Christ. So here are some other verses. Let me show you a verse uh, that proves that. Luke 24 through 27. I'm sorry, Luke 24, verse 27. <coughs> and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, again, Moses and all the prophets is referring to everything in the Old Testament, what was written by Moses and all the prophets. And beginning with Moses and all the prophet, prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I don't know about you, but when you look in the Old Testament, I don't see Jesus' name anywhere. But even though we don't see Jesus' name throughout the Old Testament, Jesus himself would preach and teach the Old Testament as scripture concerning himself. The Old Testament is Christ concealed, and the New Testament is Christ revealed, right? Here's another verse. Um, I'll get a volunteer. Someone read Matthew 12, 38 through 42. You see what Jesus did there? The Pharisees wanted a sign. And he answered, oh, an evil, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he took an Old Testament prophet and he explained it in, with, its truest, uh, with its truest understanding. Um, he says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So did you see how Jesus explained the story of the prophet Jonah with its true intended Christocentric focus? Like Jesus, we too must see all of Scripture as Christian Scripture. For example, we, and including myself, must stop explaining the story of David and Goliath as moralism. How many times have we in good faith told our children after reading them the story of David and Goliath that they too can defeat all the Goliaths and giants in their life if only they just believe? The reality is that David is just a foreshadow or a type of a better David, which is Christ Jesus whose victory over sin and death becomes his people's victory as well. And again, all scripture is Christian scripture and points us to the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the true and better Abel 
who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out for our salvation and not our condemnation. See that in Hebrews 12. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you loved for me. Now we can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord, and who mediates a new covenant. We see that in Hebrews 3. Jesus is the true and better David, like I mentioned, whose victory becomes the people's victory. Jesus is the true and better Israel, who is faithful in the temptations of the wilderness and achieves righteousness on our behalf. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true king, the true priest. So in conclusion, biblical theology sees the context of any text within the context of every text with a Christocentric focus of the overarching narrative of Scripture. Again, this assumes two principles when we, when we look in Scripture. Number one, the Holy Scripture has an overarching narrative. It's connected. There's a storyline. You read it. What you see in Genesis, you'll see things in, in Revelation that make that connection. Number two, Holy, Holy Scripture has a Christocentric focus. It is about Jesus. We might even say that Scripture's overarching narrative is the, has a Christocentric focus. This means that if the Bible is preached or taught in a way where a Jew or a Muslim who doesn't even believe in Jesus as Messiah, if they can amen our teaching or our, our preaching, it's not a Christian sermon or a Christian teaching. The same thing applies to our evangelism when we evangelize to other people. Christ must be seen as our only hope, not our deeds, not our performance, but Christ who is all in all for those who trust him. So again, Jesus is the pinnacle point of all of scripture. To be a healthy church member, one must be a biblical theologian, having a good understanding of the point of scripture. And I close with this. Let us all be reminded from uh, Colossians 1, 16 through 20. He is the invisible, he is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about Christ the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen? Amen. Any questions or comments? Still good on time, so. Amen? All right. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, that your scriptures, Old Testament, New, Lord, they reveal the things concerning Christ. Why is that good news to me? Why is that good news to us? Father, because we all fall short of your glory, and we see that in this story of redemption, Lord, uh, because of your love, you have sent Christ And Christ, doing it willfully, Lord, died on the cross, lived a perfect life, and at his death defeated death itself and resurrected. And he did it for us, Lord. And everything that we have, everything that we do, we owe it to Christ. Um, He accomplished the work that was necessary for us to be reconciled with you. Not only that, but us as sinners, Lord, we don't deserve anything, yet we've receive reconciliation with you. And on top of that, Lord, we have an inheritance that awaits us. And Lord, we are forever thankful, Lord. So we pray that um, we would be able to read scripture um, faithfully and understand it for the sake of your praise and glory, or that you would be exalted in our life and that our life would not be us, but it would be Christ um, and that we would live through him Um, and that we would live for him, Lord. So help us to apply this in our life, Lord. And uh, as we get into worship today, Lord, help us to remember that it is because of Christ that we can do these things, Lord. So we thank you and we praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.